Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello everyone. Welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Shuwan, your host. Today, I I feel very excited to invite Dr. Christine Kainer to join us to introduce her newest book, Deep Cut. So the first question I want to ask today is invite Dr. Um, Kainer to introduce herself to us. Thank you so much, Shuwan. I've always wanted to be on New Books Network. I'm really honored. Uh, I'm Christine Kainer. I'm a professor and chair of the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, My PhD is in the history of science, and I'm most interested in the role of environmental scientists, especially marine and coastal scientists, in environmental politics. Okay, thank you so much for your introduction. So for my next question, I want to invite you to talk about the reason why you are interested in studying the environmental history of Panama Canal and oceans? Uh, well, I got into this topic while I was a postdoc at the Smithsonian Institution Archives working on my first book, The Oyster Question. Uh, that examined the Maryland Chesapeake oyster industry and the longstanding debates between scientists and watermen about the best ways to cultivate oysters. Uh, The Smithsonian, it's not just a museum complex. Uh, They also operate several research facilities. So I was investigating the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in Maryland during the 1960s and 70s, but I kept finding references to this debate over sea snakes in Panama among scientists at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, which is Uh, a set of facilities that started out on this island in the middle of the Panama Canal. Um, So I was really intrigued uh, to discover that marine researchers there were worried about the U.S. government's plan to build a new canal at sea level uh, in the 1960s using peaceful nuclear explosives. Um, And they were worried not only about the effects of radiation on humans and the environment, but also about the possibility that connecting the oceans via sea level would enable all kinds of marine life to intermix for the first time in three million years since the closing of the isthmus. Uh, So while the canal that was built in the early 20th century has a series of locks and an interior pool of fresh water that kills off most marine life, Uh, these scientists were very concerned that a sea level canal would have no such obstacles obstacles to what we would now call invasive species. Uh, So that's how I got into it. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So then let's turn to your book. So for the first for your book, my first question, I want to invite you to talk about alternative shadow history of the Panama Canal creation story and the role of a sea level design in long quest to link the alternate, sorry, Atlantic and the Pacific oceans. Um, thank you. I, I really love the phrase shadow history um, from Peter Redfield. Uh, so the standard narrative of the creation of the Panama Canal is this very heroic story uh, in favor of the United States and its techno-scientific expertise at the start of the 20th century. Uh, French engineers under Ferdinand de Lesseps had tried to build a sea-level canal across Panama in the 1880s, but failed miserably. Uh, Over 20,000 workers died from yellow fever and other insect-borne diseases. Um, And then after the Spanish-American War, uh, during which it took months for U.S. warships to travel from the Pacific coast all the way around Cape Horn, 
Cape Horn to Cuba, uh, that's when pressure for a U.S.-built canal really intensified. So eventually the U.S. under President Theodore Roosevelt bought the rights from France, uh, and the U.S. helped engineer a revolution in Panama against Colombia to build a waterway. Uh, so in the conventional, very triumphalist narrative, U.S. experts conquered yellow fever to safeguard the labor force, which was mostly black men from Barbados and Jamaica. Um, and then the U.S. used these massive new steam shovels to excavate the canal. Um, to speed up the construction process, engineers chose a design with locks, which are kind of like watery elevators. Uh, the Panama Canal lifts ships 85 feet above sea level, which truly is an amazing engineering feat. And hundreds of books and articles published since the opening of the canal in 1914 have celebrated this achievement and presented it almost as a predestined event. Uh, but I wanted to show that actually there were many debates about which method and route would be best. Uh, the cover of my book has a map from 1902 showing 19 possible routes across Central America for a waterway. Um, and also, I thought it was important for, for people to remember that the majority of Roosevelt's consultants did favor a sea level design because they knew that eventually ship sizes would increase beyond the dimensions of the canal locks. However, that would have added a lot of time and money to the construction project. So the engineers decided to go with locks and let future generations worry about modernizing them when need be. Okay, thank you so much for the answer. So now, then my next question, my next question I want to what you talk about the growing techno technological sorry, episodes of the Panama Canal during the interwar years and the atomic age rationals and the techniques for the excavating a new waterway during the early year of the Cold War. Uh, yes, obsolescence is the key word. Um, that again, the triumphalist literature really never emphasizes that actually the Panama Canal was already becoming obsolete within a generation of its construction. Uh, the U.S. Congress did allocate funds for an expansion in the late 1930s, but then construction stopped during World War II and it wasn't resumed. Um, after the war, the Panama Canal Company and the Army Corps of Engineers conducted many studies about the need for modernization uh, and about how to protect the canal from sabotage. That was a huge concern during World War II. Uh, so eventually, many stakeholders began arguing for the use of peaceful atomic weapons as a tool to build this giant new streamlined sea level waterway. So the idea was that it would be a lot faster for ships to get through. It takes like eight hours to go through all the locks. Um, also, ever since it was opened, the Panama Canal has to be dredged regularly because of runoff from the landscape. Uh, so as the Cold War intensified, the thinking was that even if the Soviets attacked the canal with nuclear bombs, the damage to a sea level canal would be minimal and it could be reopened as soon as the radiation dissipated in what they thought was like 18 months or so. Um, 
And then finally, the idea was that nuclear explosives would be relatively cheap. Uh, this was the era of Project Plowshare, uh, which Edward Teller, the so-called father of the hydrogen bomb, championed as a way to build canals, harbors, and highways uh, in otherwise very difficult environments. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So for my third question about your book, I want to invite you to talk about the increasing Panamanian, sorry, Panamanian resistance against U.S. control of a Panama Canal and its colony-like enclave and how the 1964 diplomatic crisis led President Lyndon Johnson plan to replace the existing canal and renegotiated the equitable 1903 treaty with Panama. Um, yeah, that part of the story like really led me into some new areas. I'm, I'm not a diplomatic historian, but there was definitely a strong diplomatic rationale for building a new sea level canal. So, and this was to help resolve the growing tensions over the Panama Canal zone. Uh, the zone was a strip of land that extended five miles out on either side of the canal. And it housed thousands of US residents who worked for the canal along with their families. And in some cases, like there was already the third generation of these U.S. white residents for the most part. Um, the zone also included several U.S. military bases. Uh, so it was essentially a colony. They had their own stamps, uh, their own shops. There were U.S. flags flying everywhere, all kinds of amenities for the white U.S. residents. Um, it also featured just very explicit Jim Crow racial segregation. Uh, and discriminatory practices against Panamanians. Um, January 1964 is when tensions really came to a boil. Um, high school students clashed over the display of the flags of the two countries in the zone. Um, it led to riots across the country that burned for four days and killed dozens of people. This was a real turning point. Um, the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations had engaged in talks on developing a more equitable treaty between Panama and the U.S. Um, and the flag riots, as they were called, led the new Johnson administration to make this a priority. Uh, so the idea was that one of the proposed new treaties would hand back the existing canal to Panama and then build a new sea level one that would require far fewer U.S. personnel to operate and defend it. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So let's turn to my next question. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about how the Canal Study Commission, CSC, navigated the difficulty caused set by the Congress and the President to determine the proposed waterways, nuclear visibility, and the optimal location. Um, yes, thank you. I, I was really intrigued to find out about this rather shadowy group of five men um, on the Canal Study Commission. They were appointed by... Uh, LBJ, and they oversaw this huge set of studies to determine the feasibility of building a nuclear sea level canal. Uh, so other scholars have studied uh, the nuclear canal project, mainly in relation to the, the scientists, the physicists at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory who were very invested in Project Plowshare. Uh, so whereas I was able to dive into the declassified minutes of these 30 meetings that this 
uh, study commission held over five years from 1965 to 1970, um, a really transitional period in, in the history of uh, environmental politics in the U.S. in particular. Um, it was really interesting to see how they conceived of the plans. Like for the most part, these five guys, most of whom did have uh, backgrounds in engineering, they were very pro-nuclear canal. Um, but in the end, they determined that they didn't have enough data to decide in favor of it. Um, they were plagued by many delays. Uh, so one problem was that conducting the needed tests at the nuclear test site in Nevada uh, was delayed several times due to weather and also primarily about uh, concerns over violating the 1963 Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Um, also, all the studies on the ground in Panama and Colombia uh, that uh, were going to be done along the two major routes through um, the Darien Gap, uh, this area of eastern Panama and western Colombia, um, experienced many delays during the period of 1967 and 1968. Uh, so the tropical weather was a big issue because it rains for eight months of the year. There were also many logistical problems in getting to the remote sites without roads. Like even today, uh, there's still not um, um, a reliable road system through there. It's the only part of the, the Inter-American Highway uh, that has never been completed. Um, so the researchers needed helicopters um, to get in and out, but then these were also needed for the intensifying war in Vietnam. Uh, so really the, um, the Vietnam War plays a big role um, in this, this story as well. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So for the last question, the fifth question today, I want to invite you to talk about the emergence of an international forum for debating the effect of maritime transportation on marine, on marine biological diversity during the CSC's assessment of the waterways' nuclear feasibility. Um, thank you. This is really how I got into the story uh, as a historian of biology. Um, I was really interested, like I said, in all the references to invasive sea snakes that I had found in the archives. And um, I wound up getting to interview um, Ira Rubinoff, a marine biologist who was working at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute um, in the 1960s. Uh, he was a student of this major evolutionary biologist named Ernst Meyer. Um, often called the Darwin of the 20th century. Um, and Rubinoff was also aware of earlier cases of invasive species like uh, the sea lamprey getting into the Great Lakes. Um, it entered via the Erie Canal and the Welland Canal in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so Rubinoff started uh, writing about this issue. He was meeting with many other marine scientists um, who were very concerned about the ecological and evolutionary effects of a sea level canal. Um, there was also a big debate among these scientists about whether they should seize this as an opportunity to obtain research funds. 
um, or if they should come out and oppose the canal as an unethical like disaster, essentially, that would unleash massive extinction events. Uh, the concern was that more hardy, resilient species from the Pacific could overwhelm their weaker counterparts in the Atlantic or vice versa. Um, and this was a period, the late 1960s, when scientists didn't yet have the language of invasion biology that's so important in ecology today. So it's it's interesting to see the strategies that they were using to to try to raise awareness, including like writing articles in the journal Science. Um, and even the leadership of the Smithsonian uh, used its influence to uh, get the National Academy of Sciences a grant from the Canal Study Commission uh, to lay out a 10-year plan of pre-canal baseline studies. Okay, so thank you so much for your answer. Again, so for my NASA question, I'm going to invite you to talk about the CST denouements as its member figure out how to frame the final comprehensive report to President Nixon in light of two unresolved issues, PNE feasibility and uh, merit ecological effect. Um, yeah, thank you. This final report wound up being due in December 1970, and 1970 was a really pivotal year in the environmental history of the U.S. The the first Earth Day celebration wound up taking place in August in April on April 22nd. Um, and there's this myth that environmental activists wound up organizing to defeat the nuclear canal. Um, so that's not the case at all. Like really, the the Canal Study Commission they ran out of time and money. Um, like I said, the Vietnam War drained a huge amount of resources that were needed, like not just the helicopters, but also uh, many military personnel and members of the Army Corps of Engineers had been involved in the feasibility studies in Panama and Colombia and wound up being reassigned to Vietnam. Um, the limited nuclear test ban treaty also, um, led to a lot of delays because one of its provisions was that for testing nuclear devices, a country could not allow radioactive material to extend beyond its national borders. So that meant, you know, they had to really be careful about the timing in terms of the weather. Um, so there were other constraints and priorities that drained a lot of money and attention from the sea level canal project. And then another big thing for us to remember is that the shipping industry was not very enthusiastic about a sea level canal. Um, they feared that it would lead to greatly increased tolls. Um, and this is a time when like container ships are coming online and the size of uh, commercial ships are really increasing. So it was actually becoming more economically feasible to bypass the Panama and Suez canals if need be. Um, so there were a lot of reasons that the sea level canal did not come to be uh, as of 1970, but not environmental uh, activists. Okay, so thank you so much again. So for the next question, I'm going to invite you to talk about President Carter's insistence on adding a provision allowing a U.S. option for new sea level waterway into the 1977 
Panama, Pan, sorry, Panama Canal Treaty during the oil crisis and the environmental decade in the 1970s. Um, thanks. I always love talking about President Carter. Uh, I got to go to the Carter Library in Atlanta, and that I had never foreseen would wind up being a part of the the story. But um, Carter wound up insisting that uh, the Panama Canal Treaty, like one of his great diplomatic uh, achievements of his administration, um, so he did not want to let go of the idea of an option for a sea level canal in the future. And it actually really drove many of his advisors uh, crazy and it irritated the Latin American uh, negotiators as well. Uh, many people felt like, you know, this idea is dead for now, but um, he was very um, invested in the Alaska pipeline project TAPS the um, Trans-Alaska Pipeline System, which uh, cost billions of dollars. And he felt like, um, you know, this massive project then would give the sea level canal like a new rationale. You'd have all this oil coming down from the north slope of Alaska um, and then you needed a way to get it quickly to the east coast. Um, so, yeah, it was actually really complex looking at all the ways in which his interest in the sea level canal played out. Um, ultimately, in the end, though, Panama in 1981 wound up building its own pipeline across the isthmus. So that uh, was another reason that, you know, building the much more expensive sea level canal never came to be. Um, and Panama did not... Um, like have its own set of environmental regulations that it um, had to abide by in terms of the building of it. Whereas a sea level canal uh, would have now had to um, be subjected to the U.S. Um, new environmental regulations. Thank you so much for your answer again. So for my last question, I want to invite you to talk about how the sea snap studies after the 1960s acquire new political significance after 1977. Uh, thank you. This is what I was I was kind of alluding to before. Um, so as part of the, the Panama Canal Treaty and this, this provision regarding the option for a, a eventual sea level canal, um, Congress held a set of hearings about whether to update that ninth the previous 1970 report by the Canal Study Commission uh, to now be in accordance with uh, the National Environmental Policy Act. Uh, so a really important law in the history of U.S. environmental politics that um, President Nixon signed on the very first day of 1970. Um, so a, it's still an important law that requires that any project built on U.S. federal lands or with U.S. federal funds has to have uh, preliminary environmental impact uh, studies conducted. So it does add to the time and expense of construction, but the idea is that it leads to more environmentally responsible development. Um, so now in 1977 and 1978, like some of the same researchers from the sea level canal debate of almost 10 years earlier, 
uh, got to testify before Congress and otherwise um, speak in the press about uh, their concerns regarding sea snakes and other invasive species. Um, uh, so again, um, even though it might seem from our perspective today that, you know, of course, something like a nuclear canal would never have been built, that wasn't obvious to people at the time. Um, and these marine scientists, they were very uh, concerned, like I said, not just about the radiation, but also pointing out these other unintended consequences. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So from our last question today, I wondering why do you talk about how Japan, Japanese interest received the seaway idea in the 1980s, importing hydrocarbons and how more recent events link back to the feasibility study of the late 1960s. Um, thanks. Yeah, the, the, the final chapter or epilogue of the book um, points out that even when it seemed like the sea level canal idea was totally dead in the late 1970s, uh, there was still um, intense interest in it in Japan. Um, so the Smithsonian, I found some evidence in their archives as late as 1990 about um, getting involved in further studies um, with uh, the governments of Panama and Japan. Um, unfortunately, the Japanese economy wound up really taking a, a dive um, by that time. And so the financing wound up dissipating. Um, but um, the research that uh, scientists conducted to try to predict what some of the effects would be in terms of species mixing um, were important much more recently um, in terms of the Nicaragua Canal project, uh, the government of Nicaragua around 2013 um, announced that it was uh, entering into an agreement with a Chinese billionaire to build an alternative waterway across Nicaragua. Um, so several scientists, once again, in the international community uh, stepped up to express concerns about invasive species um, using you know, some of that data that originated in the late 1960s. Another area in which that research is relevant today is that as the Arctic poles are melting due to global climate change, the Atlantic and Pacific are joining uh, each other for the first time in millions of years and thereby bringing populations of species into contact like for the first time in millennia. So trying to figure out what might be some of the effects evolutionarily and ecologically of that mixing. Um, definitely relates to that earlier research. Great, thank you so much for your answer. And yeah, really, I want to say, I'm very pleasure you join, you join us today to talk about your newest deep cut. So at the end of our episode today, I want to talk directly to my audience. So for my audience, so everybody, for everyone listening to this podcast, if you are a big fan of either environmental history, either history of I mean, the history of the Panama Canal, or you are just a history of modern America, and even the modern Americas, I highly recommend you buy a copy and read Dr. Christine Kiner's newest book, Deep Cuts. 
which is one of the best book about this topic. So at the end, I highly please remember the title of this fantastic book. It's a difficult. Thank you so much for listening to our uh, our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much. The book is published by University of Georgia Press, and it is also available in open access format. Thank you so much. So, <laughs> you're welcome.